You're listening to the So What Podcast. I mean, what you typically see on the science-faith front is the separate magisterium model, and then you get the conflict model, where basically they say there's a battle between the scientific community and the Christian community. Uh, but no, we see both of them as utterly trustworthy and reliable. And yes, you will see anomalies where things don't seem to fit. But if you study those anomalies, what you notice is things that you thought were anomalous disappear. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Matt O'Reilly, and Brad Mills. Well, on this episode, we are very honored to be joined in the studio by Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, whose mission is to spread the Christian gospel by demonstrating that sound reason and scientific research, including the very latest discoveries, consistently support, rather than erode, confidence in the truth of the Bible and faith in the personal transcendent God revealed in both scripture and nature. Dr. Ross earned his PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto and served on the research faculty of Caltech for five years researching quasars and galaxies. He is the author of many books to include Navigating Genesis, Hidden Truths in the Book of Job, and Why the Universe is the Way it Is. Today, Dr. Ross is joining us to talk about the conflict between science and faith. Well, before we head over to our discussion, we'd just like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoyed the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can also find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this or any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at so what underscore podcast. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for being on So What Podcast. What a wonderful pleasure to have you here with us in the studio. Well, thank you. So, Dr. Ross, you are the founder and president of a ministry called Reasons to Believe. Could you tell us a little bit about it and why you founded it? Well, my wife and I founded it 30 years ago, realizing that uh, people need new reasons to believe. We have all these traditional reasons, but a lot of people outside the faith are not prepared to listen to them. So we present brand new reasons to believe in Christ as creator, Lord, and Savior, and use that as a bridge to bring people to the traditional reasons and then bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And so as a scientist, I mean, my, my specialty is astrophysics. I mean, literally every day, research papers are being published that make a stronger case for mm. the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And so we just basically tell people, you know, are you aware of what was discovered 48 hours ago? And people want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of our books, DVDs, uh, are focusing on what are the emerging scientific discoveries? And the whole principle is laid out in Psalms and Job that the more we learn about the record of nature, the more evidence we'll see for the handiwork of God and the more evidence we're going to see for his plan of salvation. God's given us two books, 
the book of nature and the book of scripture and we show pe- people how they fit together and how we reach out to the scientific community mm. we do it through a testable model the biggest complaint about the christian faith and the scientific community is they say creation is not testable it's not falsifiable it doesn't make predictions of future scientific discoveries mm-hmm. So from the very beginning, uh, we founded our organization on a biblical, testable creation model that is falsifiable, and we're aggressive in making predictions based on our Christian faith about what scientists will discover in the future. And our appeal is, hey, if our predictions come true and yours fail to come true, maybe you need to give the Bible a serious read. So in that, uh, I'm sensing an inherent, uh, or at least a perceived, conflict between science and faith. Surely your organization may not even exist if that wasn't the perception in, in, uh, in the public square, that these two are on opposite sides of the fence and they can't get along. Is that true, or how would you reconcile the proposed uh, Well, conflict? what's unique about Reasons to Believe is we take a constructive integration approach that we see the 66 books of the Bible as being a united whole, uh, consistent in what it communicates. We also see the scientific disciplines as consistent, and then we see a consistency between all the scientific disciplines and the 66 books of the Bible. But we're rare. I mean, what you typically see on the science-faith front is the uh, separate magisterium model, where they say there's no overlap. Mm -hmm. Uh, or there's very little overlap, or where the overlap takes place, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then you get the conflict model, where basically they say there's a battle uh, between the scientific community and the Christian community. One will win, and one will be defeated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, our ministry is based on the two books model. I mean, that's actually in the Belgic Confession, that God has given us two books. And so we see both of them as utterly trustworthy and reliable, And yes, you will see anomalies where things don't seem to fit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you study those anomalies, you'll find that they get resolved as, you know, scientific research progresses, as theological research progresses. And it's a trend line. This is how we appeal to people who disagree with us, just saying, well, let's give this more work, let's give this more time, and see where it goes. And what you notice is things that you thought were anomalous disappear. Mm. Or to put it the other way, you may resolve a big problem in your science-faith uh, paradigm. It gets resolved, and it reveals three more you didn't even know were there. Mm, right. But they're at a smaller level of significance. Mm-hmm. And it's a mistake to think that we have to have absolute proof. I mean, I don't have absolute proof my wife exists, but I have a very high probability that she <laughs> exists. And if the probability gets higher and higher, as you continue to learn more and more, you know you're on the pathway to truth. So you've mentioned... Um, a couple of times now, and I think this is a really helpful way to think about it, that God has given us two books of revelation. Theologians like to call that, of course, general revelation, that which we see right. around us in the natural world, and a special revelation, that being scripture. Right. Um, do you believe in the inerrancy of scripture? Yes. I even believe in sola scriptura, that the Bible is the only authoritative revelation from God, because the Bible is a written revelation that comes from the person of God himself, And if you look in the uh, Belgic Confession, authority was understood to only reside in a person. Hmm. And so general revelation uh, doesn't have that, uh, you know, same voice. Sure, yeah. Uh, Nevertheless, I would view it the same as special revelation 
in that it is utterly trustworthy and reliable. Mm. It is inerrant. And yet there's, there are disagreements, aren't there, with, within um, how one understands inerrancy of Scripture and the general revelation. So there is a wide array of perspectives of how to synthesize science and faith. For example, right. the, theistic evolution on one end all the way to, let's say, a very literalistic interpretation of Genesis on the other end. Um, how do your views differ on those? Because I've been following your ministry for many years, uh, and, and the way I describe you to people that haven't heard of Reasons to Believe is that you're a man who gets shot on by both sides. You find yourself, I think, in the middle. So how, how would you differentiate yourself from, say, theistic evolutionists to a literalistic interpretation well, of Genesis? Well, most theistic evolutionists I engage would claim that they believe in biblical inerrancy, but they have a very different definition of inerrancy than I have. Hmm. In other words, they'll take the scriptures and say, well, the text really isn't addressing science here at all. And I said, well, it seems to be, you know, like Genesis 1, it, it seems to be just really a blatant account of uh, natural history. Mm -hmm. It's set up as a chronology. And so when people tell me this has got nothing to do with science or creation, it's like Moses couldn't have written it any more clearly yeah, that yeah. he was talking about natural history. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a completely different idea of inerrancy. Yeah, there is no conflict, but we're going to totally reinterpret the text. Sure. And I'm always nervous when people reinterpret the text in such a way that it only applies to people who have been following Christ in the 21st century. Right. In fact, <laughs> there's even a move I see in, the, in theology. I see this on seminary campuses where it's saying, you know, we had the lexicons wrong for uh, 20 centuries, and we need to rewrite the lexicons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word create doesn't mean create. The word make doesn't mean make. Right, right. And it's like, you're going to tell me that 19 centuries of uh, Bible scholars, people who are fluent in biblical Hebrew, were wrong, and we're the only ones that are right? It's very uh, very bold to say. Uh, well, <laughs> I would call it hubris. <laughs> yeah, hubris. That's really good. What does uh, uh, C.S. Lewis call it? Chronological snobbery. Exactly. Looking back through time and saying, well, we're we're more advanced now than they yeah, I mean, you're asking me where we differ. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, what I see in the theistic evolution camp is the idea that the Bible authors were only writing for their generation, mm. whereas we take the view that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit to communicate to all generations. Mm -hmm. And I think that explains why you won't see Neanderthals in the Bible. Right. Because, uh, you know, we're the only people who <laughs> right. even knew about them. You're not going to find neutrinos in the Bible either. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's written in such a way that future generations can understand more than what the original generation, the original generation would understand some, but there is a progressive revelation. I think First Peter 1 talks about that, how the prophets were inspired by God to record scripture, but longed to understand mm. what they were recording and had to be content this is for a future generation. And that's certainly the case with Bible prophecy is that you know, if you're living in a day where the prophecy has been fulfilled, it's gonna have more significance for you than a generation is living before. But even the one that's living before is recognizing the Bible here is making uh, a prediction of what's mm -hmm. gonna happen in the mm -hmm. future. You know, there's one to come who's gonna be greater than Moses. Uh, so there's an expectation. But I think I look at the science the same way, is that uh, you know, there's a lot of science content in the Bible and people who are living in the 21st century, of course, are going to have a greater appreciation, understanding of that, because a lot of what the Bible 
predicted in terms of future scientific discoveries actually has happened. Mm -hmm. And it is incredible when I th when I think about it. Um, had biblical authors relied on the top science of their day, uh, scripture would look very differently. We would have had the world coming out of a dark ocean hatched from a large cosmic egg, and uh, we would have been stuck with that. And yet, here they are relying on something that perhaps they don't know fully, yet they feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to write uh, in a certain way that time has, has proven to be true. Well, what impresses me about the, uh, the early chapters of the Bible when it speaks about creation is how different it is uh, from what was the milieu yeah. at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the early chapters of Genesis, it's radically different from what the Babylonians were talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you think about it. So if Moses was educated in Egypt, that would have been a very different cosmology. The Babylonians, right. very different cosmology. And what I find very interesting is, is that... I've heard it said that, you know, the Bible was just written by Bronze Age goat herders, and so we can discount them as just uh, misguided mythicists at best. And yet, if you look at the competing theories of the universe's origin, um, it looks nothing like Scripture. So here we have people saying, no, I think the first creative command of God was light. Uh, I believe that there was a sequential order in which the universe came to exist as we know it today. But that was radically different from the things that they were being taught from the Yales and the Harvards of their day. Exactly. And yet... And we got humans coming at the very end. At the very end, yeah. yeah. Isn't that funny that that's, you know, how it turned out to be? Right. <laughs> um, so that's from theistic evolution standpoint. There's another end of the spectrum uh, from a literalistic interpretation of Genesis, oftentimes called young earth creationism. How does reasons to believe uh, differ from that perspective? Well, we do believe that God created in six literal days, uh, but our interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis is these days are six literal long time periods. Mm -hmm. In fact, as I try to integrate the 66 books of the Bible, it's impossible for me to read the entire Bible literally and consistently in a young earth paradigm. I mean, the problem with young earth creationism, in my opinion, is it forces different books of the Bible to contradict one another. Whereas if days are six literal long time periods, everything fits biblically. So it's for biblical reasons that I'm forced to reject the young earth paradigm. And those, those reasons would, would hover around the word day. Well, they hover around the word day and also what we see in the rest of Scripture. I mean, and what's interesting for me, too, is to understand that the young earth uh, paradigm basically arose out of a global flood interpretation of the Bible. And so it's the global flood uh, interpretation that gave birth to young earth creationism. A lot of people think it's the other way around, but mm. if you look at it historically, uh, the global flood idea came first. And that's a classic case of a failure to integrate the different books of the Bible. Hmm. Uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, I've debated people believe in a global flood, and they basically stick with Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And yet, I mean, Second Peter talks about the flood. And he says, the world of the ungodly was flooded. That's chapter 2. And chapter 3, he says, cosmos tote, the world at the time the event took place. Now, if he meant the entire planet, the word cosmos would have appeared without an adjective. But both times when he refers to the flood, he attaches an adjective. And so I do believe that all of humanity was wiped out by the flood except those on board the ark. It's the world of the ungodly. 
And also, if you look in uh, Psalms and Job and Proverbs, it speaks about creation day three, when God, for the first time, sets up land masses. So it's no longer a water world, uh, but we have oceans mm. and continents. Mm-hmm. But once that's in place, what you see, particularly in Psalm 104, once the continents appear, that's uh, verses uh, uh, 7 and 8, verse 9 says, Never again will water cover the whole face of the earth. That's actually repeated five times in Psalms and Job and Proverbs. So there we have an explicit biblical statement that we can't have a global flood. Nevertheless, it's a flood that wipes out all of humanity. And what you see in Genesis, if you go past Genesis 8 and get into 9, 10, and 11, what you appreciate is that God was dealing with rebellion on the part of humanity. Mm -hmm. God told Adam, multiply and fill the earth. They didn't do it. They stayed in one place. After the flood, they persisted in staying in one place. They said, we're going to build this city and this tower so that we will not be scattered over the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. So we can be one people, one language. And God knew that if there's only one nation, uh, then that's a prescription for runaway evil. Mm -hmm. In fact, when God did, when he scattered humanity over the face of the earth and gave them different languages, I call it antitrust legislation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> setting up many nations right. that now have to compete with one another for citizens, mm-hmm. which is a check to prevent them from oppressing their citizenry to a degree where evil runs out of control. Mm. Uh, but that's that's when humanity went from being local to being global. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is we have strong DNA evidence that actually establishes that there was a time when humanity was in one locale then you see in the DNA evidence uh, r- very rapid migration, then it stops. Hmm. We don't migrate like the animals do. I mm-hmm. mean, what you see in the history of humanity, we were in one locale, and then there was a short period of time where there was very aggressive migration into all the different ma- continental masses of the world, except for Antarctica, and then the migration ceased. And we just stay put. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the DNA evidence is there, and the DNA dates, match what we see uh, in Genesis about when Noah would have lived. Uh, Mm. By the way, uh, the text is clear that uh, Adam lived during an ice age because it says that four rivers come together in Eden. That can only happen during an ice age. And then we have the floodwaters taking seven and a half months to recede. There has to be a lot of melting snow and ice for it to take that long. And therefore, you know, that means that we have Noah uh, living uh, during the last ice age, which is consistent with the DNA date for the aggressive uh, spreading of humanity over all the parts of the world. That's really interesting. Um, one question that I often get um, about both of, both of these extremes is death prior to the fall. So yes. from a theistic evolutionary perspective, there is no question there obviously was death before the fall. From the other end of the perspective on within young earth creationism, death was only introduced to God's creation in Genesis 3 at the fall. Um, where do you stand in that uh, array and how would you explain the position? No death for humans, but death for everything else. And so uh, that's where we differ from both camps. Mm-hmm. And I think it's made very clear in Romans 5, starting in verse 12, that Paul says, that death through sin was visited upon all men. 
Now, there's only one species that sins. That's human beings. And so when he says death through sin, he's narrowing in on human beings. Then when he says death through sin was visited upon all men, he didn't say all life. He said all men. So by two qualifications in the same sentence, he's making it clear that this death that was brought about by Adam's sin uh, is specific to human beings. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us uh, that animals and plants did not die until Adam sinned. And therefore, and by the way, uh, you know, something was dying because Adam and Eve were eating before the fall. And, so uh, like vegetation? Yeah, so at least vegetation was dying. Um, and if you're going to, I mean, the whole problem is you've got also texts in Job and Psalms where basically God says that he shows his love to the lion and to the raven by providing them with prey. And so it's making the point there that predatory activity is a good thing, not a bad thing, which I think is the heart of the young earth rejection of uh, the death of plants and animals. They see that as an evil, and that wouldn't happen unless it could be somehow attached mm. to the sin of uh, Adam. But there again, I think they're making a mistake. Adam's not the first sinner. Satan's the first sinner. So why put all the blame on Adam? And this is another example where if you integrate all 66 books of the Bible, it's quite clear that the Bible is open to death of plants and animals before uh, Adam's sin, but that with Adam's sin, and by the way, when Adam sinned, he died immediately. He immediately experienced spiritual death, mm -hmm. but the physical death came later. And this is brought, if you go from Romans 5:12 down to 19, you see that it mentions both spiritual death and physical death. So the spiritual death was immediate. The physical death was brought upon humanity so that humanity, unlike the demons, would now have a pathway to be redeemed from their spiritual death. So in that sense, death is a good thing. In fact, the whole if you read the New Testament, every book of the New Testament is making it, uh, the, the message, if you want to live, you have to die. Death is a pathway to eternal life. And so in that sense, we need to stop looking at death as a fundamental evil. Uh, after all, God had his own son die so that we could live. And therefore, and we, we, we celebrate uh, baptism. I mean, I, I'm a believer in deep water baptism mm -hmm. because it symbolizes the fact that when you go completely under the water, you're dying to the old man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you come up of the water, you're reborn. And so there again, it's making the point that death is a pathway to life. And Dr. Ross, one thing I was hoping we could discuss on the show is something that we were talking about over dinner last night, and that being a very recent and important discovery uh, in science. Now, you were born and raised in Canada. You earned your PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto, and you served on the research faculty at Caltech for five years. So with your background and expertise, can you tell us about this recent discovery of gravitational waves and why it's so important? Well, it, there was one prediction of general relativity that seemed to be beyond our capability of testing. And that's Einstein. Einstein's Einstein. theory of mm -hmm. general, general relativity. It already was the most exhaustively tested principle in physics and the best proven principle. But the one thing we had not been able to check was gravity waves. And so February 11th, that was the first time we human beings actually discovered gravity waves. And so that basically uh, said, okay, 
general relativity is unassailable. Now, why that's important for Christians is general relativity is the foundation for the space-time theorems. If general relativity reliably predicts the movements of bodies in the universe, then there must be a beginning of the universe that includes a beginning of space and time itself. Hmm. Now, if you look at the Eastern religions, they claim that God or gods create within space and time that are eternal. Christianity is different, where it says space and time don't exist until God creates space and time. Mm -hmm. And these space-time theorems imply that there must be an agent beyond space and time that creates everything. So this is enormously encouraging for people who follow the Christian faith. But as an astronomer, I'm excited about something else. This is the first time medium-sized black holes have been discovered. Before this uh, gravity wave discovery, we knew there were black holes less than 15 times the mass of the sun. We knew there were black holes that are more than 1,000 times the mass of the sun, but we saw nothing in between. This discovery basically proved that black holes around 30 times the mass of the sun exist, which changes our whole picture and how we look at the beginning of the universe and the formation of the first stars and how our star winds up with the right um, elements in it at the right time so advanced life is possible. So yeah, as we discover more and more of these medium-sized black holes, it's going to give us a much more detailed picture of the whole history, origin and history of stars that I believe is going to give us a much stronger fine-tuning argument just showing us the degree to which God supernaturally sets things up so that uh, we human beings can live on this earth at this time and fulfill our purpose. So, yeah, that's, that's to me what's exciting. That's wow, great. we found yeah. these black yeah. holes. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're the right size to give us a whole new uh, insight into the uh, first stars of the universe. So what? Why should Christians concern themselves with scientific endeavors and studies? Simply put, God has revealed himself in two books, the book of creation and the book of scripture, or to phrase it in terms of theology, in general revelation and special revelation. Incredibly, despite the perceived conflict of faith and science, the more we learn about creation, the more we learn about the Creator. Naturally, some disagreement may exist within the Christian community about the exact way in which we synchronize the books of creation and scripture, but what everyone can agree on is this. There is a Creator who loves his creation and has provided a way to overcome the sinful degradation of the creation through the death, burial, and resurrection of his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Join us next time as we pick back up in our study of the Apostles' Creed. The So What Podcast is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org.